So be here two weeks. Um, and uh, actually, I said a couple of announcements, didn't I? But really, that's it. It just feels like a couple of announcements because it's so exciting. <laughs> there we go. Now, uh, a few years ago, there was this show. I wonder if you've seen it. It's called Undercover Boss. You heard of this? This is like back in the Stone Age before streaming was a thing. It's a pretty cool concept. What happens is you get the CEO of a big company. So think like Subway, the sandwich maker. And the CEO becomes the guy making the sandwiches on the front lines of a, a local franchise for a couple of weeks. And what that means is he gets to see everything that goes on in this local business. Right, he goes from the ivory tower down to the mud on your boots, coal on your face, front lines. And so they see the workers who are putting in a long shift after studying at uni all day. They see the workers who are doing their job with integrity and going beyond. They also see the workers that are you know, stealing a bit extra from the till or are giving discounts to their mates or are taking their third consecutive lunch break. So they see the good and they also see the not so good. At the end of each episode of this Undercover Boss show, each of the workers that featured in the episode get called into the office. And it's, it's like, you know, some made-up reason. Oh, we, we just need to have a meeting about your contract, whatever it is. But in they walk, and there's the old guy that they were training to make sandwiches just a, a couple of days earlier. Only now, of course, he's wearing a suit, and he's flanked by corporate executives. And it all sort of comes into place for them. Oh, this was the boss. And he saw everything. For those who did good, there's rewards. So some of them are sent on holidays. There's one guy who's given a franchise of his own. Like normally you have to get 50 grand and slap that down to get a franchise. He's just given it, right, because of his hard work. And then for those who aren't so good, well, we don't really need to talk about what happens with them. You can use your imagination. But, you know, they won't be back at Subway the next day. We see the kind of uh, same thing happening here in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're introduced to Jesus, right? The boss, the king. And he's walking among the churches and he sees everything. Now, if you don't have uh, Revelation open in front of you, open it now. Uh, it's right at the back of your Bible, so easy to find. If you don't have a Bible, there's a few up the back there. Someone would love to grab one for you. Or you can just open up your phone, type in Revelation 2 to 3 ESV. That's the translation we're using, ESV. Now, I just want to orient you here to these letters that we find in Revelation 2 to 3. This is what we're going to be going through for the next couple of months as a church. So in chapter 1, the Apostle John receives a vision from the Lord. Who's the Apostle John? He was one of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus. And now he's an old man. He's probably in his 80s. He's in exile on an island called Patmos. He's been sent there because of his Christian faith. And God now gives him a vision. And in the vision, it's pretty out there. <laughs> he sees the risen Jesus walking among seven golden lampstands. And here's what he sees about Jesus. He sees a man wearing a flowing white robe with a golden sash going diagonally along it. As he sees this man walking among the lampstands, he sees hair as white as snow. He sees eyes burning like fire. He hears a voice speaking like a torrent of water, a flood. Words cutting like a two-edged sword, face 
shining like the sun itself. He is the boss. More than that, he is the king. He is the Lord who died and has returned to life that he might be the Lord of the living and the dead. This is who John sees. And you can understand his response when he falls down on his face as though dead. He is the boss. And what's he doing? He's walking among these seven golden lampstands. And Revelation is full of symbolism, right? And so these seven lampstands represent seven ancient churches in the world at the time. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We're going to look at each of them in turn over the next few weeks. So Jesus is walking among them, and like the undercover boss, he's seeing what's really going on. He sees the good, and he sees the not-so-good. And so in chapter 2, which is where we come to now, right, Jesus has picked John up off the ground and said, Hey, I've actually got a mission for you. I want you to take these words I'm going to tell you, write them down in letters, seven letters for these seven ancient churches. And the letters are their words direct from Jesus for these churches. They're filled with encouragement. And they're also filled with warnings because he sees the good and the not so good. And the same is true for us today, friends. Jesus walks among the churches of Australia, does he not? And Jesus walks among the churches of the Central Coast. And he walks here in this church. He's with us right now. He sees the good. He sees the not so good. And so Jesus, for us, has encouragement and comfort and challenge and warning. And here's the reason why we've chosen Revelation 2 to 3 to to be what we're going to go through for the next couple of months or so. Um, Good on you, Daisy. (laughs) So here's here's why. Here's why. Uh, It's because we've had a lot of change, haven't we, as a church over the last little while? We've changed pastors. That's pretty significant. Uh, We've changed our church name. That's also pretty significant. In the last year or so, we've we've sort of implemented functional, healthy membership. Uh, We've got a constitution. There's all these things that have been changing. Jesus never changes. His word never changes. Heaven and earth might pass away, but my word will never pass away, says the Son of God. And right now, we need to hear from Jesus more than ever. He needs to form us as a church so that we become the kind of church he wants us to be. Yes? That's why we need these letters. Words direct from Jesus for us. So why don't we pray that he would give us ears to hear and then we'll jump in. Lord, we do, uh, just as as John did, we want to bow before you now, recognizing that but for Christ, we are dead sinners. And yet, Lord, as you lifted up the Apostle John, you lift us up also through the work you did for us at the cross, dying as our substitute. You lift us now in the power of the Holy Spirit to hear your word and understand it and put it into practice. Lord, I pray that the many individual choices to do that this morning would add up to a church full of people that honour and glorify Jesus. We pray for his reputation among us and in this community to grow so much that many come and put their faith in him. Lord, grow our church in this time in Revelation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, uh, each of these seven letters, if you've read them before, you'll know that they have something in common, right? They've got like a little from line. Here's from the one who's walking through the golden lampstands. That's how this one starts. But there's a different from line for each one. We're going to see each one and why it's relevant. There's also a two line. It's two Ephesus. It's two Smyrna and so on. But each of them have an encouragement and almost all of them have a warning. Not all of them. We're going to see why in the weeks to come. But each of them have an encouragement. And this one has a warning. And kids, I wonder if you, you look behind me here, you can see all of these different lights. And you can also see up on the screen, just in the background there, there are some different candles. And you might notice, kids, that not all of them are burning at the same brightness. And so too with the lights behind me, some of them look maybe a little brighter than others. In fact, I think I can see one or two there that aren't even on. And that's because Jesus has a different thing to say to each of these churches, a different encouragement, a different warning. And some of them get a lot of encouragement. They're, they're like a bright light or they're like a brightly burning candle for Jesus in the world. Some of them get more warning than encouragement because there's a lot that they need to fix. And so kids, and also bigger kids, here's what I want you to listen for this morning. Rob, if you don't mind, just uh, if I can go across there. Thank you. Uh, what was the Ephesian church? That's who we're going to hear about, the church in Ephesus. What were they doing well? What did Jesus encourage them about? And then also, what were they forgetting? So I want you to listen for those two things. What were they doing well? What were they forgetting? What, what do they need to keep doing? And what do they need to start doing? Okay, listen for those things. And we're going to work through just those two things, encouragement and warning. So first encouragement. Verse 2, here's the one Jesus who sees everything in the church, is walking among the lampstands, then he tells them in verse 2, I know your works. Now, if you heard that from Jesus, how would you feel? I know your works. I know what you're doing. <laughs> Sounds like a warning, doesn't it? But it's actually an encouragement. Take a look. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Here's what Jesus is delighted to see in the Ephesian church. They're sticking at it. They're persevering. They're going on. And what we've got to remember is that John is writing Revelation here, probably in the AD 90s. So the Ephesian church has probably been around like almost as long as this church. Like we're talking 40, 50 plus years. So this is a church of marathon runners. They've had to really stick at following Jesus despite the pressures. And what we're going to see is that their perseverance has to do with upholding truth. They're a church that is all about the truth of God's word. And there are pressures, right? Whenever anyone wants to uphold the truth, pressure comes against them. Isn't that true? Think about Martin Luther King Jr., standing up for civil rights. Think about William Wilberforce sticking up for, for well, against slavery. Uh, think about Bluey's dad. Right? You watch Bluey? You should. Bluey's dad is this one episode where he accidentally like farts on one of the kids' faces. And he has to, yeah, new one knows it. <laughs> and he has, he has to tell the truth about it, but he keeps trying not to. And then eventually he does and he has to... Right. So whenever there's truth that we have to tell, there's pressure not to tell it. 
For the church in Ephesus, the pressure comes from a specific place. And you see them there in verse 2. It's those who call themselves apostles and are not. Do you know what the word apostle means? What's it mean? Someone help me out. Just give a yell. Have a go. It's okay to be wrong. Follower of Jesus. Yep. And we often talk about the 12 apostles. John was one of them. Yep. Followers. It has, a, it has more of a technical meaning as well. Does anyone know? Sent. sent one. Yeah. Thanks, Ethan. Yeah. It comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means sent, right? To send. Apostello. Uh, and so an apostle is a sent one, someone that Jesus has sent out on a mission. Uh, now, there are people coming here to the church at Ephesus. They're rocking up and they're saying, I've been sent from God and I have a message for the church. When can I have the pulpit? The problem is they haven't been sent from God. They're a false apostle. And you can hear that coming out in their teaching. Now, we don't know exactly historically what it was that was being taught or was, was threatened to be taught in the, in the Ephesian church from these false apostles. There's one example in verse 6, the Nicolaitans. Uh, again, we don't really know what they taught. But the sort of things going around at this time in AD 90, it sounds something like this. Someone would rock up and they'd go, yes, of course Jesus died for us. Oh, yes, of course he died for our sins. But what we've got to do in order to become Christians is obey the law, right? He died for us, but we've got to complete the work. And so if you're a dude, you've got to be circumcised, uh, or maybe you've got to keep the Old Testament rituals, you've got to preserve, uh, observe certain feasts, you've got to observe the Sabbath. That's what they're teaching. And it's wrong. It's wrong. That's not the gospel, but they're coming and they're teaching this false message. Or it might sound like this, and if you've done church history with me at some point, I want you to tell me what this is, right? They come along and they go... Oh, yes, Jesus came and he came to free us from our sin. But even more than that, he came to free us from our mortal bodies. Because these physical bodies are like a cage that our, our soul is trapped in. What's that called? Gnosticism. Yep. Or even at this point as well, it's, it's docketism. There's a few different words for it. Uh, and so these people come and they're saying, this is what Jesus came to do. He's come to free us from the physical world because the physical world's evil. Now, that's also false, Right. That leads to a, actually a sinful rejection of the body that God has given us and he's going to restore in the new creation. But these people come and they're teaching these things. They're false apostles. The pressure is there. And the pressure is there for us as well, by the way. You might not realize this, but we've got more access to Christian material now in 2023 than ever before in history. You can go on the internet, you can search things, you can go to the Christian bookstore. It's everywhere. And the false apostles, those who claim to be sent from God and speak for God, they don't actually need to come here and stand here in this pulpit on a Sunday morning, do they? They can just get a, a book, even on the bookshelves of a Christian bookstore, believe it or not. They can release a, a podcast or a blog that can go global, right? They can be doing this stuff from next door to your home or as far flung as Moscow on the other side of the world. So their influence is there, the pressure is there, but Jesus says to the Ephesian church, you have not let the pressure overcome you. Because what have they done? Look in verse 2, they've tested the false apostles. They've tested them. They've gone, okay, you're claiming to be sent by God, you're claiming to teach God's word, let's check your references. Let's see if that's true. Uh, and, and friends, this is why we need to think. We need to think. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. The gospel matters. 
truth matters. We need to test the things that we see and hear and encounter. See, not everything that has the word Jesus on it or that has the word Christian on it, or has the word biblical slapped on it, is necessarily those things. It's, it's not a guarantee that it's true. I want to tell you a couple of things. Uh, this is from churches here on the Central Coast. And I'm not going on a witch hunt here. I'm not going on a heresy hunt. But I'm just taking a couple of really egregious, um, obvious examples. You might not know this, but there was a pastor here on the Central Coast. He's not a pastor here anymore. But he taught that Jesus did not literally rise from the dead. He said that it was symbolism. I don't know how that works. I don't know what Bible he was reading. But literally, you could get pamphlets that had a little interview with him uh, where he says all this, yeah, the resurrection is just symbolic. And they were down at the Gnostic corner in Woi Woi. Like, that's how much those guys loved him. This is here on the Central Coast. I was looking at uh, another statement of faith of a, a church here on the coast recently. You know, this is the fun thing to do in your downtime when you're bored. Look at church's statement of faith, right? But I was just having a look around and, and seeing what's the landscape at the moment. And there was a, a church that had like a, a reasonable statement of faith in most ways. But then there was this line in there that just stuck out to me like a, a, a red blinking light. It said that when we put our faith in Jesus, it said this clear as day, unambiguous. When we put our faith in Jesus, he will give us success, wealth, and good health. Clear as day. Now, that's not the gospel. Sometimes that's called the prosperity gospel. But it doesn't prosper anyone. And it's not good news. So it's not a gospel. In fact, what that message does is it communicates to people, put your faith in Jesus, you'll get everything you ever want. Right? Now, that's not what Jesus promises, actually. He promises hard discipleship that leads to eternal life and more than we could ever want. <laughs> but he promises that we're going to pay a costly toll in this life as we follow him. And there's no guarantee of better health or wealth or success or, or any of those sort of things. But if you don't get those things and you believe that there is a link between faith and success or wealth or health or whatever, then you must conclude one of two things. The first is that there's something wrong with Jesus because he didn't give those things to you. Or the second is there's something wrong with me because I didn't have enough faith and so I've got to give more money to the church or whatever. Again, that's here on the Central Coast. There is a church teaching that. And I'm not saying, of course, that we're the only church that teaches the truth. That's just not true. There's plenty of good churches here on the Central Coast. We're just one of them. But we do have to keep our eyes open. We do have to keep our ears open. We do need to think and test. That's why it's so important that the Ephesian church persevered at upholding the truth. And it does take perseverance, doesn't it? And I don't just mean on the church sphere. I mean, there's pressure from culture as well, is there not? We need to persevere because when our culture around us continually pressures us to compromise, it just makes it harder. You know, people aren't sinful. They're good. They just make mistakes. Hell isn't real. That's just a fear tactic that you use. Jesus isn't the only way to God. That's so intolerant. You can't keep talking about what the Bible says about sexuality and gender and these things. You know, you're a bigoted Bible basher. Have you heard something like that from someone? Or have you, you felt the risk of being called those things when you've wanted to stand for the truth? It takes perseverance. 
It takes bearing a cost, paying a price. It's hard. I feel it. But look at the Ephesian church. Verse 3, Jesus says, I know you are what? Enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. There's interesting wordplay here, by the way. You won't bear with evildoers, verse 2, but instead you are bearing up for my name's sake. You won't bear evil, but you are bearing up for the truth. There's the example that Jesus is giving us, that he's pointing to, he's saying, I delight in this. They're shutting the door to false teachers. They're standing strong against cultural distortions of the gospel, and Jesus affirms them. Now, as Jesus walks among the churches, does he see us doing that here at Coast Bible Church? I hope so. Yeah, absolutely, Kerry-Ann. We have to ask, though, is that what's happening here? And we should never stop asking that. It's not like we're doing that one Sunday, but then we stop asking it for future Sundays. No, we need to keep asking, is Coast Bible Church upholding the truth of God's word? You need to keep asking that when you listen to me preach or others who come here to the pulpit. Are you hearing week in, week out, that there is only one God, not many, just one, that people are inherently sinful. All of us fallen. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve his wrath and judgment. That God's just judgment is going to come against sin in this world. He will do something about evil in this world, which means he will do something about every evil person in this world. But there is one way to be saved, not many. One, Jesus Christ, the man who is God. He is both man, fully man, and fully God. And that faith in his finished substitutionary work on the cross is enough. It is sufficient to be saved. Are you hearing that here? Well, you've just heard it, right? Make sure you keep hearing it here. This is your responsibility. If you're a member of this church, it is your responsibility to make sure that is continually taught here. If you hear me or someone else start going off in a different direction, oh, you know, people aren't really that sinful. We're just good people that make mistakes. Oh, maybe there are some other ways to God. Uh, maybe Jesus didn't really give his life as a substitute. Maybe it was just he was a good example. Seriously, if you start hearing that sort of stuff, you've got to kick me out. Seriously. If you're a member here, that's your responsibility. But praise God, we do hear the gospel here at Coast Bible Church. Not only that, does Jesus see us and hear us upholding the truth in our growth groups, in our conversations with one another, we're not just here to hang out. We're here to uphold the truth together, to hold it tight, to hold it out to one another. Does he see us doing that? Does he see you upholding the truth, even in a world that really doesn't want you to? Does he hear you saying, yeah, this is what I believe. I know that some might think it's evil. I know that some might really disagree but I'm standing with it. Now, I want to encourage you because I think this has been a real growing point for us as a church over the last couple of years. I see many of you 
taking this stuff seriously. And I think Jesus looks at that and he delights in you because he's brought about that work in you to uphold the truth. So praise God for that. Truth matters. But it's not all that matters. There's more to the church's life than just truth. We need truth. We need more than truth. And so here we come to Jesus' warning for the Ephesian church. First was the encouragement. And kids, remember, what was it that they were doing well? See if you can answer that question. But now we're about to answer, what did they forget? Take a look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Truth is essential, but it's not enough. And the Ephesian church is missing something that unless they reclaim it, will mean that they actually cease to be a church of Jesus. And what are they missing? Tell me, what are they missing? Love. They're missing love. They're big on truth, small on love. And we might see this kind of character all across fiction. Here's a couple of examples. Sherlock Holmes on the left there, all logic, all rationality, but not so much on empathy. In the middle, Tony Stark, Iron Man, right? He at least starts this way. I think he learns as he goes. On the right, Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, awful show, but really great example of what we're talking about here. And just imagine being part of a, a church that is all Sheldons, right? If you've watched that show, you go, oh, wow, what a, what a difficult place to be. The conversations would just be so intense all the time, right? Uh, and so um, the, the church here at, at Ephesus maybe looks a little bit like this, big on truth, Small on love. But we need to ask the question, what kind of love? Because we all have different ideas, maybe, of what the word love means or what a loving church is. But I think that there's something specific going on here. And it hinges on the question, what kind of love is the Ephesian church missing? How should we understand the phrase, the love you had at first? I think there are three options for understanding that phrase. It could be love from God. You get me? They've forgotten or abandoned or forsaken the reality that God loves them. They've forgotten the love they had at first from God. Could be love for God. They're big on doctrine, big on truth, but like the passion in their heart has, has wilted. They don't love God with all of themselves, just their minds. Or it could be Love for others. They're big on God and big on truth, but they're not then showing that love out into the church, right? If you want to think about our church's vision, knowing Jesus, loving his church, reaching the lost, they're doing the first part really well. They're not so good on the second part or the third, okay? Which one of these is it? Well, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because we're just given this one phrase, just the love they had at first, and, and I guess that's that phrase, at first, could help us. If only we knew what kind of love they had at first. If only there was a way of knowing what the Ephesian church was supposed to do with one another in terms of love. If only we had some sort of letter written decades earlier that would show us... You, you get me, right? <laughs> the letter of Ephesians. Oh, that's there for us. Fantastic. And believe it or not, the word love appears in the letter to the Ephesians 23 times. It's a love letter. It's got a lot about love. 
And what I'm going to do, I'm going to put these up on the screen for you. I've just got a, a handful of references here from across the letter to the Ephesians that mention the word love. And I want you to tell me, is it love from God, for God, or for others? You understand what you've got to do? All right, here's the first one. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. What a wonderful truth. Which one is it? From God. This is the love that God just gives. Predestination, it's not something we contribute to. He just graciously gives it. Second one. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Obvious, which one is it? From God. Okay, we're getting a bit of a pattern here, aren't we? So it could be the first one. Here we go. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Which one? Ha, for others. Mm. <laughs> okay, that destroys the pattern, doesn't it? What about this one? Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Which one? Mm, bit of a mishmash there, wasn't it? <laughs> is it? Is it more than one? It's more than one, isn't it? It's, it's from God. It's probably for others as well. One more for you. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Which one? Second one, for God. Yeah, yeah. So, so what are we seeing? It's all three. It's all three, right? And I think actually these three are connected because, as you could see, it begins with love from God. He predestines us. He takes the dead and he makes them alive in Christ. It starts with God pouring out gracious love to us through the gospel. But then, when we've been saved by the love of God... We pour out love back to him, don't we? Never equally, but, but in gratitude, we worship him. We turn our lives over to him. And part of that is serving others. It's, it's looking outwards and looking at the needs of our brothers and sisters and saying, I will love you. And it's looking outwards at the world and saying, you need the gospel. I will love you. So these three things, I think, are connected. It begins with love from God. And then we pour out love for God as we love others. In fact, as John himself wrote another time, we love because he first loved us. So what's that mean for the Ephesian church? What exactly have they abandoned or forsaken or forgotten? Well, I think first they've forgotten the love that God has for them. That's what it first means. It's like the problem is at the root. But then the symptoms of that problem are that they failed to love God with their whole heart and they failed to love their neighbour as themselves. It comes back to the root that they have forgotten or forsaken the love that God has for them. And this can happen for us too, can't it? Think about when you first came to faith in Jesus, if you have a faith in Jesus right now. Think about it. Like It was probably fresh. It was probably exciting. You just had this real sense, wow, God loves me. Wow, Jesus died for me. Wow, my sin is separated as far as the east is from the west. That's incredible. That's bananas. How could God do that? And then you're like, man, I just want to read my Bible. I just want to pray. I just want to grow. I just want to put sin to death. This is great. This is exciting. And then you, you see others in need in the church. You're like, I just want to serve. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to do it. <laughs> right? You think back. But then, of course as happens in many marriages, in fact, like things just kind of roll, don't they, over time? 
And that excitement starts to turn into just like familiarity. I've heard this before. Yep, yep, yep. Teach me something new. And rather than, you know, that, that just natural, like riding a bike, like I just love God, it just, it just happens. It feels like we've got to work up the energy to do it. And then sometimes we stop doing that. And instead of naturally seeing the needs of others and reaching out to them, we, we start just sort of closing our hearts a little bit to others and we, we start just focusing on the people that we get along with or even just ourselves. Now, this happens. And, and if you maybe have only been a Christian for a short period of time, like weeks, months, or even a year or so, maybe this hasn't happened for you, but it probably will. Most people go through this kind of cycle. I have. I've been through it a few times. Probably you have too. But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't just say, well, that's life. That's what happens. Everyone has a honeymoon period, right? But then it's real life. He doesn't do that, does he? He challenges it. This I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He's saying, God hasn't moved. God hasn't gone anywhere. His love is still pouring out on you in exactly the same way that it did at first. But you've moved. You've walked away in some way. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. And in so doing, in abandoning this reality that God loves us, we then abandon our, our joyful duty to love Him. and We abandon our joyful duty to serve others. And again, if you've been a Christian for longer than a few weeks, then you know what I'm talking about. The question is, what do we do about it? And this is where Jesus instructs the Ephesian church. He doesn't just say, hey, I have this against you. Go and somehow fix it. He tells them exactly what they and what we need to do. Verse 5. Two things. They both start with R. Jesus was the best preacher ever, right? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember and repent. Repent. Do the works you did at first. So first, remember how far you have fallen. Jesus says, look back. And we could ask questions like this. You know, was there ever a time where you sat with the scriptures, it was just you and the word of God, and you were just overcome with God's love for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus says, remember that time. Remember, I know you're not there right now, you've fallen. But remember that time. God hasn't moved, you have. But remember what it looks like when you were close to God in that way. He says, was there ever a time when you were praying and you just felt crushed by your sin? Like you, you knew the reality that, that sin is bitter, that I do deserve God's judgment in and of myself. But then God, like he did for John, lifted you up and reminded you that he sent his son to save you and die for you. Sin was bitter, but then grace was sweet. And you were there praying and it just hit you. Wow. Remember that time. Was there ever a time where you set an alarm half an hour early every morning because you just couldn't wait to spend time with God? Remember that time. Was there ever a time where you started serving? And again, you didn't know what you were doing. You just wanted to. You got in because you loved Jesus because you knew that he loved you. 
Remember that time. Was there ever a time where you saw your brothers and sisters in need and you were just pulled towards them and so you opened your wallet and you opened your schedule on your calendar over and over and over and not because you had to, just because you wanted to. Remember that time. That's step one. Remember what it was like when you knew God's love richly. He hasn't moved. But remember what it looks like to be with him. Then secondly, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, repent just means chuck a U-turn. Okay? And it's, it's not just change your mind. It's not just think something different. It's actually do something different. It's take a different direction with your decisions and your habits and your life. And I want you to hear this correctly. It's do the things you did at first in this case, not feel the things you did at first. That's crucial. And in fact, it's usually like the first piece of marriage advice that any couple gets, isn't it? It's like, you will fall out of love. That is going to happen. <laughs> you, will, you will have things happen in your life. You will get kids that make you stop looking inwards like this and make you start looking outwards like that. You will find it hard to feel the things you did at first. But that's when you've got to do the things that you did at first. Love your wife. Love your husband. Not just feelings, but do the things that show love. Clear out the dishwasher before they get home from work. Right? Sweep the floors, etc., etc. Uh, buy her a, a bunch of flowers just because. Do the things you did at first that actually generated and sustained the love that you have. And it's the same in our relationship with God. We don't just wait around for feelings. Like, I, don't, I just don't feel like opening my Bible. Well, yeah, but do the things you did at first, says Jesus. The feelings will often follow when we start doing the things we are meant to do. Now, what are the first things that Christians do to grow in God's love? Because there are lots of things people will say will help you feel closer to God. But what are the first things, the things you did at first? Well, we can actually look back at the early church and we can see that there are at least three things that they did to help themselves know God's love and grow in God's love. And here it is in Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, right? So notice, doing something and doing it with intention. They devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. There's the preached word of God. Today we have the scriptures, right? That's the apostles' teaching for us. They devoted themselves to the scriptures. They listened to preaching. They read their Bibles. They put their, the scriptures into practice in their lives. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And notice that it's not just fellowship. We can have all sorts of ideas of what fellowship is, right? It's where I eat a cake and have a cup of tea and talk about whatever. No, <laughs> it's to the fellowship. That is the brothers and sisters. So they're in community together. I want you to notice that it's community that has communion, the breaking of bread. That's likely a reference to the Last Supper. So this is a community of faith. It's a church. They devoted themselves to each other as part of a church. And then thirdly, they devoted themselves to the prayers, to praying. And theologians often call these three things word, community based on communion, and prayer. They call these things the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary because they might not look all that exciting. But ordinary also because we ordinarily expect God to minister his grace to us when we do these things. You don't need to go and find a mountaintop 
with an amazing sunrise to feel close to God. You don't need to go and do religious rituals. You don't need a rosary bead. You don't need to say the Lord's Prayer 50 times. You don't need to walk through a labyrinth. You don't need to get to the beach. That might be helpful, but what you need is the scriptures, the community of of the saints, and prayer. Do the things you did at first, and God will meet you there in love. Remember how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So think, brothers and sisters, what do you need to do? What's the step you need to take? What's a habit that you need to hit the reset button on? Not because it's works that get you to God, but so that you would remember the grace of God that he constantly pours out on you. This is so important. Like you, we need to get this as a church. We need to, and we need to continue in it. And not just for your own walk with Jesus, because listen to what the Lord says to the Ephesian church in verse 5. If not, if you don't do this, if you don't remember and repent, then I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'm going to come and switch the light off and and move it. You're not going to be a church anymore, says Jesus. And we might say, great, so it ends with a threat. Well, actually, no. In verse 7, it ends with a promise. We're going to finish on this. Look at these words in verse 7. He or she who has an ear to hear, has, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, the one who keeps going, in truth and in love. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here's a picture of God's love for you. He promises that you will eat from the tree of life. And we know the significance of this, right? The tree of life. Where was that? That was in the Garden of Eden. This takes us right back to Genesis. And in fact, if you want to go on your own time to look at Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see the tree of life mentioned there in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem. And so we have Adam and Eve in the beginning who sinned against God and were barred from eating from the tree of life. We have Christ coming. And then, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the right to eat from the tree of life in the new creation with God and his people. Beautiful, the way that Jesus points us here to that the whole sweep of history, the whole sweep of salvation, finding its culmination in you with communion with God, eating from the tree of eternal life. But for the church of Ephesus, there's actually an additional layer of significance here. We're going to finish on this point. See, there's a temple. I love this stuff, okay? <laughs> so that's why I'm going to, I couldn't leave this out, so I've got to tell you it. There's a temple in Ephesus to a Greek deity named Artemis. You heard of Artemis before? She was like the hunter in the Greek gods. So outside the temple is, ready for it, a tree. <laughs> and it's called the tree of refuge. What would happen is if you committed a crime in the city of Ephesus, so maybe you've stolen something or you've injured someone, you've murdered someone, you could run to the courtyard of the temple of Ephesus and like grab hold of the tree. And then for as long as you stayed near that tree in that courtyard, they couldn't punish you for your crimes. Now, what that would mean is, yes, you get off scot-free, but you'd have to live now in this little shanty town of criminals that's developed around the tree. In fact, it got so bad at one point, I think it was one of the emperors who said, we've just got to clean out that courtyard. It's just horrible, right? 
So here's the tree, and everyone in Ephesus knew about this tree, place of refuge. And yet in Jesus, we have a true place of refuge. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Is that what it says? Tree. He bore our sins on his body on the tree. It's the same word. Paul could have used the normal word for tree, dendron, but he doesn't. He uses this different word, xylon. It's the same word that John uses in Revelation. John doesn't use the normal word for tree, dendron. He uses xylon. He's drawing a parallel here. Jesus died on the tree bearing our sin that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. See, where we cling to the tree on which Jesus died, we find true refuge, forgiveness for our sins at the cost of Christ's life. And when instead of a shanty town, we find his church. And instead of the fearful expectation of judgment, should we leave the four walls of the courtyard we find the promise of eternal paradise, eternal life with God and his people, enjoying festivity, food, grace, overflow of kindness forever and ever and ever as God's forgiven saints. There's God's love. There's the promise. And that means we've got a truth worth upholding and a love worth grabbing hold of. This is Jesus' words to us today, friends. So be encouraged to uphold the truth and be warned not to forsake his love. We must, must, must be a church that's big on both. Big on truth, big on love. And as we've been looking to Jesus today, I'm sure he's bringing something to your mind. A step that he wants you to take. A habit he wants you to reset. Maybe there's a step towards knowing the truth better or upholding it more boldly. Maybe there's a step towards reclaiming the love that you had at first, experiencing God's love, showing it to others. What's the step that Jesus wants you to take? Because remember, each and every one of those individual steps we take in response to the Holy Spirit adds up to a church of people taking those steps together. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be the kind of church that is big on truth and, and big on love because we recognize that your words are truth, you are truth, and we recognize that you, God, are love. We want to worship you as the God of truth and the God of love. And as we pause for a moment here, Lord, we, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to bring to mind how might you have us respond to your word this morning. Lord, we want to continue listening to you as we open your word ourselves this afternoon and throughout the week. Help us to think, to repent, to remember, to trust, to worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.